this morning we begin a study in what are commonly and affectionately known as the doctrines of grace. What we believe to be the biblical doctrines upon which God saves sinners. Ultimately, that's what we're saying when we use the term doctrines of grace. We're simply attempting to explain uh, that God saves sinners. Or this, salvation is of the Lord. That's really ultimately and concisely what we mean when we refer to the doctrines of grace. Now, there may be those who disagree with what the term means, but for those who hold it dear, that's what we mean. And that is historically what it has meant. And I'll deal more with what the doctrines of grace are uh, later this morning. Now, why would we do this? Why would we spend six weeks addressing a topic that some deem to be a man-made theological system or a man-made construct? What's our motive? Well, first of all, we don't believe that it's a man-made construct. The reason we don't believe that is because while there is certainly a systematized expression of these doctrines in what we call the five points of Calvinism, we believe they are not simply supported by Scripture, but that they are clearly the naturally derived truths found in Scripture by the Spirit-filled child of God and student of His Word. Again, not everyone would agree with that, but that's what we have found to be true, and so it is our belief that we must be faithful to the Word of God and the God of the Word and teach them with humility and confidence. We believe we must fear him and not fear man who might dispute these truths. We believe in a gospel of justification by faith alone, not by works. That's what we believe. And so we believe we must teach these doctrines. And we're not alone. We're not alone. The historical record of the church says we are not alone in this. More about that, though, in a bit. So in your notes section there in your bulletin, I have what I've referred to here as an introduction. And I want to uh, tell you that this morning the introduction is going to be lengthy and the body is going to be short, but the body will be expanded over the next five Sundays. And you'll get, I believe, a full and honest and faithful and compassionate and gracious expression of each of those five doctrines from other men in our church. Number one, Calvinism is not a tribute to John Calvin. Now that is alarming to a lot of people. You know, the obvious question is, well, then why is it called Calvinism? We'll get to that more in a bit. But just know, that's not what it is. <laughs> the idea is not that, man, we just love John Calvin so much, we're going to teach everything that he taught. Let me just tell you, I don't, nor do you agree with everything John Calvin believed and taught. Do you believe in infant baptism? No. Now, John Calvin's infant ba baptism was not Roman Catholic infant baptism. So it's not heresy. The heresy of Roman Catholic infant baptism says that baptism saves you. John Calvin's baptism, infant baptism, was a sign. He believed that it ushered in 
the faithful use of the Christian parent's efforts in his child's life. And uh, that really is kind of the beginnings of what we would call covenant theology, that in God's covenant, he saves a lineage. Again, we don't agree with that, but it's not heresy. The heresy of the Roman Catholic Church is that being sprinkled with water gives you regeneration. There's quite a difference. But still, we don't believe everything John Calvin taught. We don't think his eschatology was right. And there are plenty of folks in our circles, so to speak, who do think his eschatology was right. But here's the difference. And here's the reason. Calvin and other reformers did what they could in the time that they had. Praise God for the reformers who didn't get everything right, but what they got right was the essentials. And if you've ever heard someone say, well, I don't understand why in the world we have no problem with folks like this who we disagree with on these theologies, we have a big problem with other people in the area of other theologies that we disagree with. You ever heard somebody say that? Why is it that we have such a hard time with certain people, you know, who seem to be in Christendom, and um, we sort of tolerate the rest? The key term is the essentials. You must not disfellowship with someone with whom you disagree on non-essential issues. You might not be comfortable fellowshipping in that local church. But you can't call that person an unbeliever. For the person who is devoted to, dependent upon a false gospel, see, that's the person that must be told you've embraced heresy. You've embraced a damnable gospel, a false gospel. See the difference? And so it's not a matter of us picking and choosing who we want to agree with and who we want to disagree with. It's a matter of the essentials. Praise God for John Calvin, who so clearly and faithfully and diligently, really passionately taught the truth about what it means to be justified by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Not just Calvin, but the other reformers as well. So Calvinism is not a tribute to John Calvin. That's not what we're looking at. That's not what we're studying. Calvinism is the soteriology of Jesus. Just be clear about that. Jesus was the first Calvinist. That might sound odd because Calvin wasn't born yet. It's not odd if you understand that Calvinism is not named for Calvin. Calvinism is simply a, a nickname. Number two, Calvinism did not begin with John Calvin. I've kind of already explained that, but I'm going to explain that much more as we go later. Really, Calvin's theology was traceable back to Augustine, and from there, traceable back to the apostles and Jesus. Number three, Calvinism was not created to refute Arminianism. Now, that might seem the strangest statement you've heard me say this morning, because in historical chronology, the um, codification, if if you will, of Calvinism at the Council of Dort followed on the heels of the efforts of those who wanted Arminianism Arminianism to replace Calvinism. So in some sense, it, it was a response, but not ultimately. As you look at history from the bird's eye view, what you would see is that Calvinism originated in Scripture. And so um, the idea that Calvinism was created as a response to Arminianism is just absolutely wrong. Humanly speaking, you can see how some might think, it, think that, but even once you start looking at it, you would say that that's not even humanly true. 
and we'll understand that better as we go this morning. Number four, Calvinism is not a man-made construct. It's not man-made. You know, I've heard good people say, you know, any man-made system has its flaws. Calvinism is not a man-made system. What you often think of when you think of the term Calvinism or the doctrines of grace is the human codification of the doctrines that permeate Scripture. That's true of any systematic theology. You know, many of you have purchased and have been reading MacArthur's new systematic theology. It's the best one on the planet. And we, and we have great reverence and respect for other authors who have written systematic theologies. But we believe that everything in it is right. Uh, we're not proclaiming that we are completely certain that everything is right, because every theologian has his flaws. I have flaws, you have flaws, everyone does. But you can trust that systematic theology. And some might say, have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, the doctrinal statement in our church is the Bible. <laughs> you ever heard that? Sure you have. Well, we just believe in the Bible. You know, I had a discussion with a, a guy about this, uh, I don't know, eight or ten months ago. I was at a function, a public function. He was a photographer. He was taking pictures. And we got to talking about uh, our church and his church. And he said, well, what do you guys believe? And I said, oh. Well, we're a Reformed Baptist church. I went on to explain what Reformed theology is, that it's rooted in the idea that God is a God of sovereign grace. Uh, he saves all those who come to him by sovereign decree. And we're Baptistic. Uh, we believe uh, in the doctrines of the original Baptist, you know, really the Anabaptist church. And one of the things that comes down to is believer's baptism that a person would only be baptized once he has come to know Christ and then baptism is a sign. Anyway, I explained all those things, and, and he said, oh, well, we just believe the Bible at our church. And I said, oh, sorry, you know. Well, because we don't, you know. We've got this doctrinal statement that's all kinds of problems. We love problems, right? Well, no, I mean, our doctrinal statement is for the purpose, really, in our age, of our website, right? That people could look at the website and say, oh, that's what they believe. What if we just put the whole Bible on our website? And here's our doctrinal statement. Figure it out. <laughs> so it's just a short-sighted, I think, viewpoint to say that we just believe the Bible. You know, lots of people say that. And you and I are wrong on, uh, at some points you know, throughout life in, in our discussions. We, we communicate things poorly at times. And maybe, maybe we have wrong convictions. And so a, a, a doctrinal statement or even a philosophy of ministry statement is intended to help smooth that out. You know, we spend time working on it so people can understand what we think we believe and that we can discuss it with them. Calvinism is derived from Scripture. I think you'll see that over the next month. Number five, Calvinism is not the gospel. Now again, these might be alarming statements, especially if you're new to Calvinism and you've grown to love it and you've heard that Charles Spurgeon said Calvinism is the gospel. Well, let's put that in context. My friend Phil Johnson has written a post called Why I Am a Calvinist. It's a tad lengthy, but I, I think you'll find it incredibly helpful. This is Phil quoting Spurgeon. I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. 
I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross, nor can I comprehend the gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. So what Spurgeon has done here is delineated the five points of Arminianism. He's saying, I don't believe in that gospel. Here's Phil's response or his comment to help you and me and others understand what Spurgeon meant. Phil says, I absolutely agree with what Spurgeon says there in the sense that he meant it. And the context of that statement explains clearly what he meant. He was pointing out that the principle at the heart of all gospel truth is the same principle that drives Calvinism. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's work. It's not something we do for ourselves. That's the truth he was defending. Spurgeon was not saying that we ought to use the five points of Calvinism the way Campus Crusade people use the four spiritual laws. He wasn't saying that all you ever talk about is the doctrines of election and reprobation. You are faithfully preaching the gospel and the whole counsel of God. Unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of careless Calvinists think Spurgeon meant when he said Calvinism is the gospel. But if you read Spurgeon's whole article on Calvinism, he makes very clear what he meant. In fact, at the beginning of that very same paragraph, as his preface to remarking that Calvinism is the gospel, he wrote this. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2, verse 9. That is just an epitome of Calvinism. It is the sum and substance of it. If anyone should ask me what I mean by Calvinist, I should reply, He is one who says salvation is of the Lord. I cannot find in Scripture any other doctrine than this. It is the essence of the Bible. He only is my rock and my salvation. Tell me anything contrary to this truth, and it will be a heresy. Tell me a heresy, and I shall find its essence here, that it has departed from this great, this fundamental, this rock truth. God is my rock and my salvation. Phil goes on to say then, did Spurgeon believe Arminianism was in error? Absolutely. So do I. Did he believe it was damnable error? Absolutely not. And he made that clear too. This is a fine line. What's the line between that which is wrong and that which is heresy? Well, that question is answered with the same answer with regard to this as it is with regard to you and your theology, right? Is all your theology pristinely accurate? Well, no. And so while it's wrong, if you're in Christ and your hope is in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, then what you believe is not damnable heresy. Um, a few years ago, in a men's study, a man in our study made the statement, 
uh, that according to James, salvation is by works. And I said, you don't believe that. And he said, well, that's what it says. I said, you don't believe that. I mean, I know this guy, and I knew him well enough to know he doesn't believe that. So over time, we endeavored to have more discussions about this. And I would say with confidence, he doesn't believe that. But that was bad hermeneutics. James doesn't say salvation is by works. He says justification is proven in your works. So while there was a miscommunication, really a misunderstanding that ended up being miscommunicated as we talked through that, what the ultimate, the ultimate issue needed to be was where is your hope? Is it in works? Yes, the works of Christ, and not yours, right? Well, number six. Calvinism is a nickname for the doctrines of grace. It's a nickname for the doctrines of grace. So why now? Why would we take these five Sundays in a row to proclaim these truths and one additional Sunday just to introduce them? Because this October 31st will mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation of the Christian Church. Freedom from the bonds of the heretical and false gospel of Roman Catholicism and its works salvation that has led billions, billions into a false sense of security rooted in their own deeds. Truly, October 31st, 1517 is an anniversary worth celebrating, but more important, it's an anniversary worth understanding. It's troubling. It should be troubling to you and to me when we hear someone diminish the significance of the Reformation as if it wasn't important. I was on staff at a church years ago, and at the beginning of our annual summer retreat, the executive pastor made this statement. First words at the retreat. First words out of his mouth to start the, you know, the staff retreat where we're supposed to you know, pray and figure out what we're going to do the rest of the year. He says, I just want to make it clear, we are not a Reformed church. Well, let me just tell you up front, that was directed at me and three other men on our staff who had embraced the truth with regard to the doctrines of grace. Let's just say I had a little influence on those three guys, and um, there was less than favor on me for having done that. So I smiled and kept my mouth shut, because what good is that going to do to respond in that moment? But you know what I wanted to say? I wanted to say, so are we Roman Catholic? But this is not unusual among Christians who love Jesus to say something like, the Reformation, what was that all about? Who cares? The Reformation was critical. It was God's work to restore the church, really to pluck the church out of the false church. So why October 31st? What happened? Was it all settled on that day? Was this the day the true church broke free, announced its devotion to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and the Protestant movement was underway with a clean break? No. It was only the beginning, sort of. It wasn't the beginning at all. 
It was on that day that a young professor at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, proclaimed the heresies of Roman Catholicism and the moral depravity, bankruptcy, and hypocrisy of its dead head, the Pope. Quote me on that. The ultimate deadhead. But there were many faithful believers who stood against Rome in centuries past. You might call them the pre-reformers. Thomas Bradbourine, an English mathematician, physicist, and theologian, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, early in the 14th century, emphasized the grace of God and salvation against Rome's wishes. He had significant influence on another man who would follow on his heels, John Wycliffe, prior to the Reformation in the areas of predestination and grace. Wycliffe denied the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the mystical idea that the bread and the wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus. Roman Catholicism still teaches this to this day. He also opposed the church's wealth-building practice that came from selling indulgences. He believed in and taught the authority of Scripture and denied the authority of all the oral tradition of the church. John Wycliffe translated nearly all of the Latin Vulgate by hand into English. For a religious system that wanted at all costs to prevent the layman, the common man, from having a Bible in his hands, this was not a good idea. And so when Wycliffe died in 1428, they exhumed his body and burned it just to send a message to anyone who might follow in his steps of translation. Also in the 13th century, John Huss, a Bohemian priest, rebelled against the Roman Catholic system, taught that to be a member of the body of Christ was not rooted in the sacraments, but rooted in how you lived your life for Christ. He also rejected and exposed the selling of indulgences, and for his efforts, he was also burned, but burned alive. In the 15th century, John Wessel, a German theologian, also refuted transubstantiation, indulgences, and priestly celibacy, and declared, that the, declared the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. In a conversation with the Roman Catholic icon, Thomas Akempis, Kempis pointed Wessel directly to the Virgin Mary for hope. Wessel said, um, Father, speaking to Thomas Akempis, Father, why did you not rather point me to Christ who calls the heavy laden to himself? So this would not have sat well with the priest Thomas Akempis, and it would not have gone well, therefore, for Wessel. Wessel was accused of heresy and died in prison. Martin Luther said about Wessel, if I had read Wessel earlier, my enemies might have said that Luther drew everything from Wessel so well do our two minds agree. Gorolamo Savonarola exposed the immor immorality of the Pope and was hanged and burned, having been accused of heresy. Desiderius Erasmus exposed the hypocrisy of the Roman Catholic Church and passionately pursued the exposure of its heresy through satire in the 15th century. But it was Martin Luther that the Lord used in the 16th century to bring down the house of cards known as the Roman Catholic Church. He was ordained as an Augustinian monk in 1507 and lived in constant fear of his eternal destiny, constantly in fear of God's wrath hanging over him 
and he was greatly disturbed by the rampant corruption and immorality of the Catholic priests he knew in Rome. In 1511, he moved to Wittenberg to study for his doctorate of theology. It was during that time, while he immersed himself in God's word, that God saved him while he was reading from Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. This rocked everything he had believed, but it freed him from the bonds of salvation by works. Luther had no intention of starting a reformation that would result in separation from the Roman church. It was his desire, in fact, to actually see reformation of the church, not from the church. But how can you reform a heap of ashes? And that's what Luther concluded. Posting such a treatise on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg was typically an invitation to a theological debate. You know, if someone were to nail a treatise or a number of theses on our door, they'd break the glass and we'd call the police. But in this day, it was a common practice. And um, it was intended to nurture a discussion, a public discussion, so as to address what one considered to be problems, theological problems. But it was the timing that was provocative. The eve of All Saints Day, the day... Uh, the night before the traditional day, November 1st, an important day in the calendar of the Roman Catholic Church as it is when they display all the relics of those who have been declared to be saints. It's the worship of these dead people who are not only not worthy of worship, there is no reason to believe they were even regenerate as they were devoted to the demonic doctrine of salvation by faith plus works, a false gospel. So they weren't saints. You are saints. The term saint simply means set apart. Isn't it interesting that because the Catholic Church has kept the Bible out of the people's hands, they can use that term not only wrong in one way, but wrong in two ways. They don't apply it to the person who is saved by grace. They do apply it to the person who's not. It's the worship of these dead people who are not worthy of worship that they're so vastly and passionately devoted to. All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, or Hallow Mass. Yes, it eventually became Hallow Evening, or Hallow Eve. Yes, Halloween. But that's a topic for another day. What was the point of the 95 Theses? Primarily, it was the selling of indulgences to build the wealth of the church. And it was a declaration of justification by faith alone. Luther made direct reference to the use of the term indulgence 45 times in the 95 Theses. So clearly, this was the focus. Oh, and he also mentions the Pope 34 times. Obviously, with some intent to expose the Pope. But what were indulgences? They are expressions of kindness. That's really what the term indulgence means, right? You've heard someone say, uh, please indulge me, while they go into some explanation of something that might not at first seem so believable. Why don't you just indulge me? In other words, give me a minute, listen to me, keep listening, even though you think what I'm saying might be crazy. So the term indulgence or kindness was intended to describe the acts of the Roman Catholic Church toward those who could pay lots of money, lots of money to get themselves out of earthly and eternal trouble. And what did they receive? Freedom. Freedom from the temporal punishment. That's their term. 
freedom from the temporal punishment for sin, despite Scripture's teaching on the efficacy of Christ's death to certainly atone for sins, not potentially atone for sins, the Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches that sins must be either paid for now or after death in a fictitious place called purgatory. They would say, better to pay for them now, and you can do so with money. The papacy claims to have a treasury, this is a quote from a Roman Catholic website, treasury made up of superabundant merits of Christ and the saints, from which to retrieve kindness to the one who will pay cash for them. Now, it's not all about cash, although it was in Luther's day. Uh, today, they wouldn't get away with that so much. I mean, they do get away with it, but not nearly as they did in that day. Uh, number 21 of uh, Luther's uh, 95 Theses. Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Well, no kidding. Papal indulgences, acts of the Pope's kindness granted for some service. Now, the, the thread that's weaved through this throughout history is acts of, of penance or acts of service. If you do this, then the Pope will grant you some indulgence. But obviously, in a day where um, building St. Peter's Basilica required lots of money, it was quite convenient to say, you know what, let's just take, uh, let's just take a little money for that. And pretty soon it was coming in like a flood, right? I mean, that's common for especially those with lots of money to think that the use of their money is going to gain favor that would keep them out of hell, or in this case, out of purgatory. Number 36 of Luther's Theses. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. Offensive to the papacy. Are you kidding? How are we going to pay the bills? Number 45. Uh, yeah, number 45. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. See the point? That you would not give to the needy that you would not give to the poor, but instead you would give to those who would grant you kindnesses, keeping you out of purgatory. Number 66, the treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. Offensive. That's what they were doing. They fished for the wealth of men by saying, hey, you know, if you got a few bucks, we'll grant you kindness. Keep you out of that holding tank called purgatory. Number 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Now let's let the Roman Catholic Church speak for itself on this. This is from a Roman Catholic website called New Advent, the one I quoted from earlier. It says, and I quote, an indulgence is the extra sacramental remission of the temporal punishment due in God's justice to sin that has been forgiven. 
which remission is granted by the church in the exercise of the power of the keys through the application of the superabundant merits of Christ and of the saints and for some just and reasonable motive. Regarding this definition, the following points are to be noted. So what they're saying is that while forgiveness of sins has been granted, it's not necessarily applied until you provide some act of service or some amount of money. So again, regarding this definition, and I'm still quoting, or I'm quoting again, the following points are to be noted. In the sacrament of baptism, not only is the guilt of sin remitted. Are you serious? In the sacrament of baptism, sins are remitted? This is the false doctrine of salvation by dunking, or by sprinkling in their case. Uh, I return to the quote. In the sacrament of penance, the guilt of sin is removed, and with it, the eternal punishment due to mortal sin. But there still remains the temporal punishment required by divine justice. And this requirement must be fulfilled either in the present life or in the world to come, i.e., purgatory. An indulgence offers the penitent sinner the means of discharging this debt during his life on earth. Talk about motive. Yeah, I think I'd rather get that taken care of now. Who wants to go to purgatory? I'm not sure how awful that place is, but I know it's not good. Here's some money. I'm quoting again. An indulgence is valid both in the tribunal of the church and the tribunal of God. This means that it not only releases the penitent from his indebtedness to the church or from the obligation of performing canonical penance, but also from the temporal punishment which he has incurred in the sight of God and which, without the indulgence, he would have to undergo in order to satisfy divine justice. This, however, does not imply that the church pretends to set aside the claim of God's justice or that she allows the sinner to repudiate his debt. As St. Thomas says, he who gains indulgences is not thereby released outright from what he owes as penalty, but is provided with the means of paying it. Are you confused by that? It's confusing. But the point is this. Keep paying, even though it's already paid for, but not yet paid. But there's more to be paid. It goes on to say, The church therefore neither leaves the penitent helplessly in debt, nor acquits him of all further accounting. She enables him to meet his obligations. It's just an absolute two-edged lie. Number one, that you could pay this debt. Number two, to say that while you're paying it, you're not really paying it. But also to say, well, by the way, it's already paid, but not quite. Push-pull, push-pull, push-pull. It's like being in junior high again. An indulgence, they say, may be gained in any part of the world. Uh, That indulgence is universal while one that can be gained only in a specified place is local. You get that? So if you pay an indulgence at your local church, it doesn't count in Rome. That was the exact point. You're coming to Rome, we need your cash. A 
further distinction is that between perpetual indulgences, which may be gained at any time, and temporary, which are available on certain days only or without certain periods. It's like reading the fine print in your credit card statement. Real indulgences are attached to the use of certain objects, crucifix, rosary, metal. Personal are those which do not require the use of any such material thing or which are granted only to a certain class of individuals. Example, members of an order or confraternity. The most important distinction, however, is that being plenary indulgences and partial. By a plenary indulgence is meant the remission of the entire temporal punishment due to sin so that no further expiation is required in purgatory. It's permanent. A partial indulgence commutes only a certain portion of the penalty, and this portion is determined in accordance with the penitential discipline of the early church. To say that an indulgence of so many days or years is granted means that it cancels an amount of purgatorial punishment equivalent to that which would have been merited, uh, remitted in the sight of God by the performance of so many days or years of the ancient canonical penance. Here, evidently, the reckoning makes no claim to absolute exactness. It has only a relative value. What's the point? The point is, we make the rules as we go. And if you have paid for indulgences, just know that it's partial in one case, and even in the case where it's considered to be permanent, there's no claim to absolute exactness. And therefore, we can always come back to you and say... You owe us more. The Roman Catholic Church has never repudiated indulgences. It's every bit as active today as it was in the 16th century when Luther wrote the 95 Theses. In 1985, Pope, Paul, uh, Pope John Paul II declared that indulgences could be given to those viewing a Roman Catholic worship service on television he explained various methods by which one could earn indulgences, a sacred pilgrimage to Rome, the Holy Land, or to the cathedral or other local church building, or by doing good works, or by one day of abstinence from alcohol or tobacco, or by giving donations. End quote. You had enough? Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's why the doctrines of grace matter. Because without some effort to give an explanatory help to folks who are so confused by this intentionally confusing system, they will be locked in the bondage of it for who knows how long. You're redeemed by grace in Christ. Don't pay indulgences. Are you to be faithful to the church, faithful to Christ, faithful to God's word? Absolutely, but you don't earn anything by doing that. You're only expressing your gratitude and your love, your faithfulness. To obey Christ is simply to Exhibit your redemption. That you are justified by faith means that you will work. You're predestined for good works. Well, a quick note on some terminology. 
so that you understand what we're saying when we use these terms. The term Catholic, it's, uh, it's really been hijacked. The term Catholic simply means universal, and so you are the Catholic Church. I don't mean you only. I mean you are part of the Catholic Church, the universal church. When I was a kid, I grew up in a, unfortunately, a USPCA Presbyterian Church. I wish it had been a PCA Presbyterian Church committed to the sufficiency of Scripture, but it was a very liberal church. But one of the good things they did was they had us read the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Here it is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, really, it's a misnomer to call it the Apostles' Creed, but the idea was that the theology of the Apostles was being codified into this shorter statement, really this confessional. And in that era, the Catholic Church was not what you and I think of when we think of the term Catholic Church today. Really, there was one church, and much of it had a black eye because most of the people were devoted to a false gospel. And you say, well, that's not the church. Right, but that's what it was like for a thousand years. So when the Apostles' Creed was written, it was written with the perspective of the beauty and the reality of the holy Catholic church, right? The church, the universal church. Church, You know, we would more commonly use the term universal church when we're talking about the universal church than the term Catholic church. It's not wrong to say Catholic church when we talk about us and all those who are in Christ throughout the world today and all those who are in heaven who were members of the body of Christ before their death. But it would be confusing. So we use the term universal because the term was hijacked. So that's what Catholic means. That's what Catholicism means in its root. The second term I want to define for you is Roman Catholicism. And I probably don't have to do that, but let's just suffice it to say that Roman Catholicism is that system which is rooted in salvation by faith plus works. Salvation by faith plus works. There's an addition to the gospel because what Christ did was not enough. You have to do something. And you're starting probably to think, okay, you're starting to realize, wait a minute, this makes Arminianism a problem. Arminianism dabbles with Roman Catholic theology, and Arminianism is very favorable for the most part in the eyes of the papacy. But Roman Catholicism is that which is devoted to a false gospel. Now, there are many other heresies. We don't have time to talk about those today, but they are many. Number three, Protestantism. What's the root word in the word Protestantism? Somebody say it for me. Protest. Now, who wants to be known for protesting, <laughs> right? But that's what we're known for. We are a Protestant church, for sure. 
And I would say there's a strong sense in which any church today that's legitimately devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a Protestant church, even though they wouldn't want to be known by that term. And I wouldn't blame them for not wanting to be known by that term. I don't mind being known by that term, especially when there are those who move into the area or, you know, they're looking on uh, the Internet to find a church where they can send friends. This happens on occasion. And they find our church and they find out, oh, that's a Protestant church. It's actually truly a Protestant church, and they're pleased to send folks to us. So I don't mind that at all. But the trouble is folks outside the family, so to speak, look at that term and they think, oh, so you're one of those people who wants to be known by what you don't believe in those things that you're against. No, no. But Protestantism came as a result, uh, was the term that was popularized as a result of the fact that there were those legitimately uh, committed to Jesus Christ, legitimately committed to his gospel, to his church, to his word, who protested Rome. They stood up. That list of reformers that I read to you earlier, what we called the pre-reformers, and then the reformers, what did they do? They protested in a spirit-filled manner. You can call it spirit-filled Protestantism. That's really what it is. Well, the fourth term I'll define is reformed theology. And really all we mean by this is that which is rooted in uh, salvation by grace alone. You know, uh, we did a study last year at this time in the five solas. Um, and I've worked to um, systematize the five solas into one sentence that soon you will see posted on this wall out here when you come into the entryway. Um, we're not going to use the Latin terms. We'll use English. Most people don't speak Latin today, at least that I know. So we want folks to know that we are committed uh, to God's word alone and salvation found therein by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Those five solas are really the beautiful expression of Reformed theology. That's what we mean when we say we're committed to Reformed theology. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, when I heard the term Reformed, I thought of a Reformed school. That wasn't a good thing. You know, that was, that was where they sent the kids that were worse than me, and that's pretty bad. And uh, maybe, you, maybe you were one of those kids, or you know somebody who was, and all that was about was just strict regimen that was intended to scare kids into a life of discipline. When we talk about the reformation of the church, really what happened was the plucking out of the church from the false church. So the Roman Catholic Church wasn't reformed, but the church itself was saved. The elect were drawn out, and therefore the Roman Catholic Church was exposed. Now, what does any uh, of this have to do with Calvinism? We don't have much time left, so I'm going to move quickly here. When Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door, John Calvin was eight years old. The Reformation was already well underway. He would study for the priesthood, abandon the pursuit early on to become a lawyer. Then, through the study of the original languages of the Bible, he would uh, arrive at the same conclusions as Luther. Same conclusions, uh, soteriologically. You say, I thought Calvinism was a response to Arminianism. Well, let's talk about that. Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theology professor in the 16th century when the Reformation was already underway. You may have heard him called James or Jacob or Jacobus or Jacobius. This is how transliteration works. If your name were translated into Latin or Spanish or German or whatever, you know, it, it would be loosely translated and you have a variation of translations. 
his Dutch name, his real name was Jacob Hermanzoon. Now don't ask me how they got Arminius out of that, but somehow they did. Um, after sitting under Calvinistic teaching and some anti-Calvinistic teaching, he began to develop his own theology, but did not see it come to total fruition. He died in 1609. A year later, his followers voluntarily took the name Arminians. They more fully polished his theology and were compelled to take a stand against the caretakers of Protestant theology and the true church during its separation from the Church of Rome. The remonstrants, they called themselves, uh, them, themselves protesters or debaters. They were rejecting uh, the truth of the doctrines of grace. They developed five doctrines and presented them to the state of Holland in what they called the remonstrance, meaning a strong protest. In fact, they called themselves the remonstrance. Against the standard teaching of the Protestant and Anabaptist churches, they laid out these five doctrines as Roger Nicole summarizes them. You're not going to be able to get this down, so don't try. Number one, God elects, this is the first point of Arminianism, God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. Number two, Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. Number three, man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. Number four, this grace must be, uh, this grace may be resisted. Number five, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. This article was later, the fifth article was later adjusted to indicate that a believer could lose his faith and therefore lose his salvation. Now, here are the five points of Arminianism condensed. Number one, free will. Free will. Number two, conditional election. Number three, universal atonement. Christ died for everyone. Number four, obstructible grace. And number five, falling from grace. Today, many who hold to Arminian theology are convinced that one cannot lose his salvation, but that belief is terribly inconsistent with the other four points of Arminianism. It's all wrong. Every point of Arminianism is wrong. Uh, from the five point books, five points book that I recommended to you earlier, this statement. The Arminians drew two deductions. First, that since the Bible regards faith as a free and responsible act, it cannot be caused by God, but is exercised independently of him. Second, that since the Bible regards faith as obligatory on the part of all who hear the gospel, ability to believe must be universal. Hence, they maintained Scripture must be interpreted as teaching the following positions. Number one, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Number two, nor is he ever so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. Number three, God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by his foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. Number four, Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith to anyone. There is no such gift. 
What it did was rather to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. Number five, it rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail here fall away and are lost. Thus, Arminianism made man's salvation depend ultimately on man himself, saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work and because his own, not God's in him. It's all wrong. Eight years later, after the remonstrance took place, the Synod of Dort examined the teachings of Arminius. And when Calvinism was declared by the Synod of Dort after seven months of counsel, uh, they declared Calvinism to be the true biblical teaching on justification by faith. It was the result of that counsel and resounding declaration of the error of Arminianism. It's important to understand and remember that Calvinism was not a response to Arminianism so much as it was a response to Roman Catholicism. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that Calvinism was not and is not an effort to respond to anything. But it is the salvation system of the apostles and of Jesus and of God the Father and of God the Spirit. It's what we find in Scripture and it's what the Reformers found in Scripture. So for the body of my message, number one, total inability or total depravity. This is the T in the acronym TULIP. Ephesians 2.1. I'm just going to read you some passages and point out that uh, the idea of proof texting is when uh, you, you say, this is what I believe, and then you kind of hammer people with nine or 12 verses uh, to prove your point. On the other hand, what uh, these are is a codification of these truths that are, I think, quite easily derived from Scripture. So you see total depravity all throughout the Bible. But particularly in Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul speaks of a transition, a point at which... Those who were dead, proven by their conduct, were made alive, proven by their conduct, but not produced by their conduct. They were made alive from an outside source, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from the text that we studied a number of weeks ago in John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The unregenerate are dead. They need to be made alive. So they're totally unable, totally depraved. Number two, unconditional election. In Ephesians 1, 5, Paul says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's God's work. God predestined some, and he saved that some, and he will glorify that some. So much certainly true that Paul speaks of it as if it has already happened. Number three, Definite atonement or particular redemption, straying from the acronym TULIP. The L stands for limited atonement. I'll talk about that in a moment. So we're calling this definite atonement or particular redemption. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whom did God obtain with his own blood? Say it with me. The church. He purchased a particular people. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. For every single person in the world? No. And by the way, cosmos doesn't mean every single person in the world. Where you see the term cosmos in terms of those for whom Christ died, or in John 3.16, that term was a response to the fact that Jews thought that Christ had only come, would come for them, that the Messiah would come only for the Jews. And so the use of the term world was to expose the fact that it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for those from every tongue and tribe and nation, not just Israel. John 10.27 my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Matthew 1, 21. If, if that's not enough to know for whom Christ died, Matthew 21 says, She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that is whom he has saved and will save. You say, well, who would want a limited atonement? Arminians. Right? Isn't Arminian atonement limited? No, no, no. It's for the whole world. It's for anybody. It's for everybody. But it didn't save anybody. Right? It was not efficacious for anyone it left actual atonement actual forgiveness actual salvation in whose hands man so man has to do something which therefore necessitates a free will which therefore eliminates the sovereignty of god number four by the way that is a limited atonement it's completely limited Completely non-effective. Number four, irresistible grace. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. See, that's an irresistible grace. It's not a grace that God grants saying, you know, you, you decide. You choose whether or not my grace is good enough. Grace applied results in salvation. Number five, perseverance of the saints. This is kind of the obvious one, and yet it's the one that original Arminianism said was certainly not a certainty. Philippians 1.6, and I, this is phenomenal. I mean, just listen carefully to this. I, I am sure, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, does that apply to a work that man began? No. Therefore, Arminianism, if it's honest, would say, yeah, you can lose your salvation because guess what? You chose it. You initiated it. You obtained it on your own. Therefore, yeah, you can free yourself of that. Not a Calvinistic soteriology, not a biblical salvation. You can't lose that because you didn't begin it. God began it. He who began a good work will complete it. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Who? All that the Lord, Father, God has given him. John 17, 9, Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. See that? There's a category of people for whom Jesus never prayed. I'm not praying for them. Who's he praying for? Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And I am glorified in them. That passage speaks of all of the doctrines of grace. Well, what do we do with the doctrines of grace? What do we do with this? Or better still, why do we do anything with them? Why do they matter? Why do the doctrines of grace matter? And why are we studying them? <laughs> we should be able to answer that. Number one, to ascribe glory to God. To ascribe glory, to display the glory of God in truth. The truth of what he has said. A, a doctrine, a theology, a soteriology, a gospel that glorifies God, not man. You ever been in a worship service where at the end of the service people will come down as a result of some sensationalized plea and, and the congregation claps for them? You ever been in a situation like that? People are clapping for people. Why? Because those people are well aware of the fact that what's happening is humanly initiated. That's exactly what's happening. Oh, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. You wouldn't clap for a person when God saves him. You would weep with joy. And you would welcome that person into the body of Christ as a result of God's glory in his life. That's why we teach this. We want God's glory to be on display. Number two, 
to provide rest and strength for the believer. Rest and strength for the believer. Do you remember when you were an Arminian and you pulled up to a gas station? Do you? And you saw that guy or that gal and you thought, I got to share Jesus with him. If I don't, he could go to hell and it'll be my fault. Or you would walk door to door. You'd be on some evangelistic campaign with your church. Or you were at work. And your coworkers are trying to get you to talk about, you know, work. And you're like, i got to tell them about Jesus. Why? Because you knew it was all dependent upon you. You knew the truth and you had to tell them. And you couldn't trust the Lord to provide those natural opportunities to share truth with people based upon how they saw you live your life. You know, the best worker, Colossians 3, is the best evangelist because then he has credibility to take somebody to lunch and not steal from his boss by talking about the gospel and to confidently explain the truth about how Jesus saves people. That provides rest. See, you can relax You can say the pressure's not on me. The pressure is there to live your life for Christ and to tell the truth, but that's rest. You're finding your comfort, your joy in him and what he has accomplished, not in what you think you have to accomplish, but you're not sure how to do it. So many evangelism programs start with how to get over the nervousness. The first evangelistic program, if you could even call it that, that I ever went through was rooted in the doctrine of election. My friend Steve Ramish, I was taking a group of college students through Colorado and Utah on a mission trip, and we took three days in Big Bear where Steve walked us through his curriculum called, I think he called it Christian Evangelism, and he he showed this pyramid, and at the bottom of that pyramid was the doctrine of election, and I looked at that and I thought, man, I I don't don't know how this is going to go, but, uh, you know, I'll listen, and it was amazing. It produced confidence in all of us to just speak the truth, to trust the Lord. Number three, to nurture confident humility in evangelism. Confident humility in evangelism. You know, that you could be gracious, that you could speak the truth of the gospel. And by the way, Calvinism is not the gospel. You know, don't go to work tomorrow and say, hey, can I take you to lunch and show you the five points of Calvinism so you'll know Jesus? No, don't do that. Share the gospel. Speak to them about the power of the atonement to literally atone for sins, to provide forgiveness, and the resurrection to give victory over sin and death. That's the gospel. Calvinism is not the gospel. The gospel rests on those doctrines of grace. But tell people the truth about salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Finish with this. Another help from my friend Phil Johnson in a, an article he wrote called A Primer on Hyper-Calvinism. A Primer on Hyper-Calvinism. Because you don't want to be hyper-Calvinistic. Now, if that term meant what it should mean, it would mean lots of Calvinism. But that's not what it means. It means you went beyond Calvinism. So listen carefully to this. You won't get these down either, I don't think, but you can always listen to the message later again. Number one, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who either, number one, denies that the gospel call applies to all who hear. So the hyper-Calvinist believes that there will be those who hear the gospel to whom it doesn't 
apply. It's a hateful mindset. It says, uh, well, I'll share the gospel, but if you don't repent, it's your fault because you didn't hear it. Number two, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who either denies that faith is the duty of every sinner. It's the duty of every sinner to express faith in the gospel. Every person in the world has that duty. So we wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to share the gospel with him because he's obviously not of the elect, and therefore it's not my duty to tell him of that duty. No, it is his duty and it is yours. Number three, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who either denies that the gospel makes any offer of Christ salvation or mercy to the non-elect or denies that the offer of divine mercy is free and universal. The offer of the gospel is to everyone. And the one who rejects it is responsible for rejecting it. Number four, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who either denies that there is, uh, is someone who denies that there is such a thing as common grace. God causes it to reign on the just and the unjust. The non-elect experience God's grace every day. Grace is not only for the elect. It's for every man. Number five, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who denies that God has any sort of love for the non-elect. You ever heard that? God hates the non-elect. Well, Psalm 5.5 and Psalm 11.5 assure us that God hates the sinner. But when the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, one thing he knew, because the text of Scripture tells us, was that Jesus loved him. God has a love for all people, and yet he has a special love for the elect. This is introductory, and my hope is that you would really, really embrace what we're trying to do. I'm so glad that so many of you are here today, that you would hear this introduction and that you would walk away from here with a penchant for grace, that it would not be your practice uh, to mow people over by saying, don't you know anything? I mean, how do you, how do you not know these things? But that you would say, you know, I remember a day when I, I didn't know this, and I still don't understand it completely, but I see it in Scripture, and therefore I trust God that what we understand from these things is true of Him, and, and so I believe it, and I'm going to communicate it where I have opportunity. But ultimately, what I'm going to share with my life and with my words is from Scripture that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone the atoning work of Christ on the cross to forgive sins of all those who will come to him and to provide victory over sin and death in his resurrection. Father, what a privilege you've given us to see these truths in your word and to trust you in them and to worship you. And now as we continue to spend a little time together, we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be knit together in these rich and critical truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.